Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. So it was in May, it was in the spring, it had been raining for a while, several gray days, drizzly rain, nobody suspected anything unusual was going to happen. The year was 1889, and it was the little, get this, the little Connemaw River in Pennsylvania, and upstream at the South Fork Dam, strange things began to happen. The water was saturated, filled, the river behind it was at its banks, and all of a sudden the dam gave way. Fourteen miles downstream in a narrow valley where this water came rushing down with the speed and force and size of the Mississippi River, Johnstown lay in the path. So you know about the Johnstown flood. If you don't, it's the worst flood in American history. About 14 and a half million cubic feet of water instantly hit that town, killed over 2,200 people, caused over, in today's money, over a half billion dollars of damage. But you know what's interesting about it? That's only the 58th worst flood in all of recorded world history. Worst American flood. You go back to 1931, the Yancey Hui River flooded and killed almost, how many folks you want to guess? 100,000, 200,000? Two million? Well, that's what had happened a few years earlier in 1887 when the Yellow River flooded in China. Two years before Johnstown, about two million people were killed. But when the Yangtze River flooded in 1931, four million people were killed. Can you imagine that? Probably need a battery, I don't know. Maybe I just don't need to turn this way. Okay. All right. So where were we? That's a lot of people. But you cannot imagine, unless you know the biblical story, what we're going to talk about tonight. You know, um, the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the perfect home. That Joel talked to us about that in uh, Genesis 1 and 2. And then Chris talked to us last week about the um, seeds that were planted, the seeds of doubt, the seeds of sin, and also the seed of the coming Messiah, where, of course, the prophecy is given, the first messianic prophecy, where the serpent's descendants are going to strike at the heel of the descendants of the woman, but the descendant of the woman is going to crush his head. And remember, God, even in the garden, provided for them by killing animals, making a sacrifice, taking the skin of them and covering Adam and Eve. So there was a sacrifice by God in the garden, but not by Adam. And so, one thing I want us to understand at the beginning of this story tonight is that God's blessing and command, his blessing and commands didn't stop with a fall. Things changed. But what was his, his command? In Genesis 1, it said, and God blessed them. 
and he's talking about man. He doesn't talk about Eve until later, but he says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and, and here, here are the commands, be, do what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth in order to do what? To subdue it, to be good stewards of it, and to rule over it, to guide his creation over all the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the blessing of God is not canceled by the curse of the fall. The commands of God have not been trumped by the disobedience of man. God is going to continue working his plan against all odds. That's important for us to remember. The curses that are pronounced in chapter 3 that Chris talked about, they pronounce the results of sin and pain, suffering, struggle, and strife, but they don't cancel out God's blessing. And God never withdraws his command. He still expects them to live in companionship. He still expects them to be productive, and he still expects them to take responsibility for stewardship of his creation. So the two commands continued. Multiply, that is, by procreation, be, be fruitful and fill the earth. And then the other command was twofold, subdue and rule. And rem remember what we said th about that three weeks ago. It meant that they were to subdue by stewardship, which isn't grind creation at your heels. It isn't abu abuse the environment, but it is subduing through stewardship that helps the earth then to become more productive. It's not wild. It's tended. It makes it more productive. And then to rule isn't authoritatively over. It is to guide creation to accomplish God's purpose. And so man positively responds. We have this idea that, you know, everything falls apart, goes off the rails after the Garden of Eden. It, well, it eventually does, but, but, but man does fulfill those commands. Think about it. He multiplied through the lineage in chapter 4 then. What happens in chapter 4? We're given the lineage after Cain, seven generations down to the flood. In generation four, uh, in Genesis four, in Genesis five, then the third son of Adam and Eve has been born, introduced in chapter two, and then in our chapter four, then in chapter five, nine generations of that son are listed. What was his name? Seth. So you have Cain, and then Abel, and then Seth, and God blessed them. He blessed them with what? Longevity. Right? Sure. The average age of Seth's line, we know that because we have the years when the children were born and then how long they live. The average age, not including Enoch. Enoch kind of cheats us a little bit, you know. Uh, and we heard that this evening when um, uh, Heather read about from Hebrews the 11th chapter. Enoch was translated. So he only lived how many years? 622 years only. But the average age of the rest of them was 912 years. Now, what would you think to be a generational cycle? We think of a generational cycle of being about 40 years. Although folks don't wait until they're 40 to have kids, probably about 25. A generational cycle is about 40 years or so. The generational cycle at this time in history was over 180 years. So he blessed them with longevity. Then along comes the beginning of our story. Genesis 6. We're going to do Genesis 6 through 9 tonight in about another 34 minutes. Genesis 6, what happens? My spirit will not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Okay, he's not just spirit, he's flesh. 
Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Now, how do we always interpret that passage? That means then that those that had lived to 900 and something, now they're only going to live to 120. But let me ask you this. How long then do the people live from Noah? Well, from uh, Seth down to, we have the, the lineage that I talked about down to Noah. This is the beginning of the Noah story. How long do people live after that down to Abraham? It's not 120 years. You see, um, if you take the lives of those in the intervening, intervening time from Noah to Abram or Abraham, the average is 332 years. So is that what that passage means? That they're going to live for 120 years? Well, maybe. If you look at then from Abraham down to the time of Christ, where can you go to find out how many generations there were? Matthew, Matthew, the first chapter. Three sets of 14 generations or 42 generations. We don't know exactly when Abraham lived. Uh, early Iron Age, maybe about then, maybe the time of Hammurabi. Scholars estimate between 1900 and 2100 B.C. So just say 2000, 2000 years, and you divide it by the 42 generations, then what that tells us, we don't know how long each of those people lived in that line, but what I can tell you is what the generational cycle is. The generational cycle drops from 184 years before down to a fourth of that, to 48 years. So you see this passage might be talking about gradually he's going to pare down the age. Betty Lutomsky passed away, and we buried her yesterday. She's 93 years old, pretty old lady. Uh, David, uh, David's mother passed away in Mississippi the other day. How old was she? 103. How many people live to 120 now? Okay. And yet we think that we have longer longevity. Is that, that's, that's a, a double statement. We have longer longevity, you know, than they, they did a few generations ago. I think it might be saying that they will only live 120 years. There's another way to look at this, though. It could be a forecast of destruction. Because you see, this is the beginning of the Noah story, and Noah, the Noah story, and Noah is how old at this point? 500 years old. How old is it when the flood hits? He's 600. So 100 years. So what may be happening here is the beginning of the story, God is communicating through Moses later, the beginning of the story, even before he has talked to Noah about 20 years ahead of time. He may be saying the man's end is going to come, what, in 120 years. I don't know exactly what that passage means. It could mean either one. What we do have to be careful about at this point, I think, is taking too literally the dating, the dates, okay? And, and it may be that Methuselah lived how many exactly years? 969, okay? Those may be exact years. They may be figurative. And if they are, it doesn't bother me. And the names are names of people. Some scholars say mm, it might be the names of tribes. That doesn't bother me if that's what God's saying. One thing we have to be careful about is doing a mathematical calculation. And you can do this. You can go back and look at all the lineages and everything and kind of piece together, adding literally the dates in Scripture and using some logic and come up with the date of creation. You have to be careful about that. Because you'll come up with what Archbishop Usher discovered, that the earth was created in 4004 B.C. So we have to be careful about that, I think, with literal dating. 
So they did. They multiplied. You see, they were obedient. And then they, they, were, they were obedient in the other respect. They subdued and they ruled over the land. Look at Abel. What does he do? He begins to gather sheep. He becomes a shepherd. You see, he begins to steward God's creation. Cain did it. He became a what? A farmer. Sure. Fruit of the land. You see, subduing the land. And then after Cain, the curse of Cain, what did Cain become? Not a farmer. He left the city. I mean, he left, the, he, he left out just outside the garden. He went into the land of Nod, and he was a vagabond. But he eventually settled, and he was a city builder, you see. You look at the descendants of Cain, then you come down to the seventh generation after him, and there is a Lamech, who incidentally, there's a Lamech and Seth's lineage. They're not the same one. He's the father of who? Whom? Of Abram. But this Lamech has three children. Jabal, who domesticates livestock. Jubal, then, who becomes the father of musical arts. Yeah. And then the third son, Tubal-Cain, he becomes the originator of metal works. So, you see, what's happening is they are being obedient. They're subduing the creation. They're stewarding the creation properly. But then comes the need for redemption. Everything isn't going all that well. We know that Cain murdered his brother in Genesis 4. Well, he didn't murder him in Genesis 4. But Genesis 4 tells us that he murdered him. Why? What was, the, what was the primary cause? Jealousy. Jealousy against whom? His brother Abel. I would propose to you that the primary, the, that's not the primary reason. I think that's the secondary reason. Why do you think he murdered his brother? Because he was jealous of his brother. Because God looked more favorably upon Abel's sacrifice. We don't know what all that means. We just know that his was a more worthy sacrifice. That kind of begs us to come up with a lot of theories. But he did offer a worthy sacrifice, and Cain's wasn't. And then God says, now watch out, Cain. You're going to be tempted. You know, What you need to do is strive to offer a worthy sacrifice. But Cain doesn't. He becomes angry with God. That was the main thing. You see, there's rebellion in the heart of God against, uh, in the heart of Cain against God. Secondary cause, I think, was jealousy. And then the second murder occurs when? In the same chapter, chapter 4. Lamech then, you know, seven generations later, says, by the way, what, what, what was the curse upon Cain? It would be even more difficult for the land to produce than it had been for Adam. He was cursed with alienation because he says, you know, I am cast out now. And there was a third curse, but it wasn't upon Cain. It was through Cain. It tattoos him. He marks him. And he says, I'm going to protect you. And a person that kills Cain will be cursed how many times over? Seven times seven. And then along comes Lamech of many generations, seven generations later. And he, and he, he admits to his kids. He says, I have killed a man who hit me, and I have killed a boy. And if Cain was protected seven times, I should be protected what? Seventy-seven times seven. Do you hear that later in the New Testament? Yeah, yeah. So what's happening? Evil is magnifying, and it is spoken about then in chapter six here. The situation, human wickedness has become great. Why? This is a principle in our whole redemptive story. Unredeemed human flesh simply will descend into total depravity. We talked about that this morning. We lived in a depraved day. 
Human wickedness had become great, and the cause was unredeemed fallen nature. And it grows worse every day, more sinful and violent. In chapter 6, verse number 5, if you've got your Bible, turn there. Because we're going to come to the primary text today at the very end of the sermon. Okay? I'm going to build up to that. Chapter 6, verse 5. Every intent of the thoughts of man's heart, every intent was only evil continually. Even from his what? Youth. And God knows this. This is what Calvin described as total depravity. It's what I would describe as total depravity. All creation paid a price for Adam and Eve's sin and for Cain's sin and for Lamech's sin. All creation. What's happening here? They are being disobedient to one of the two commands. In stewarding God's creation, they have not done it properly. They have not forfeited entirely, but they're not being good stewards of God's creation. And it says here that what happens is the whole world, the whole earth becomes corrupt in God's sight. It is filled with violence. So not just corruption of sin, but violence. And all flesh, not just human flesh, but all flesh has corrupted their way. And God's response was twofold. First, it says that God became sad. Does God have emotions? Sure. Did God know this was going to happen? Sure, he knew it was going to happen. But does it diminish his sadness? No, still the heart of God is sad. It was grieved him to the heart. The other thing then it did, caused a response in him, was judgment. Divine judgment on what? Humans? No. You see, all flesh. And so he pronounces judgment then on all creation to wipe out all humans all earthbound creatures, and all those that do what? Fly in the air. What about the fish? I think they're safe in the flood, okay? So in 613, he says this, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And who is the them? The humans that are being disobedient. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. That could be taken two ways. I'm going to destroy them with all those that are on the earth, or I'm going to destroy them by means of the earth. The flood is going to come. So we then enter the main part of the story. There's a glimmer of hope, a glimmer of hope. There's a righteous man, one righteous man, one man that finds the eyes of the Lord in chapter 6, verse 9. Righteous and blameless, he walked with God, verse number 9. He alone... Noah alone is righteous in the eyes of God. Now stop and think about this. If you look at the generations and you trace them out and you do a timeline to see who is living in 500 years, of, at the 500th year of uh, Noah's life, Methuselah is still alive. Who is Methuselah? Well, we know him as the oldest man on earth, but who is Methuselah? He is Noah's grandfather. Lamech is still alive. And probably that eighth generation that comes after the other Lamech in Cain's lineage, he, they are probably still alive, Jubal and Jabal and Tubal-Cain. And all of these do not meet the standard of God's righteousness, including Methuselah and including Lamech. You see, only he is righteous. And he's righteous, it's interesting. It doesn't say he's righteous because of what he did although that is a product, I think, of his righteousness. He's righteousness because he has been doing what all of these years? He's been walking with God. What is walking with God? 
What is walking with God? What did we spend 14 weeks talking about upstairs? It's worship. He has been walking worshipfully with God for how long? How old is he? He's half a millennium old for 500 years. Well, maybe the first four or five years he wasn't. I mean, how long does it take to walk, Dorothy? Maybe for the first year and a half he wasn't walking. But he's walked with God all of his life. You know, you might think that there's a disadvantage to a 500-year-old man being called to build this ark. <laughs> but he's in midlife. This is Noah's midlife crisis. How long does he live after that? He lives to 950. Do the math. He lives 450 years after he's called by God, 350 years after the flood. You see, he's in midlife. And he has three vigorous young sons. We don't know exactly when they were born. It says, and he was 500 and he had three sons. Who are they? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We don't know exactly when they were born. And we don't know if it means that they were born by this time or at this time or a little after this time. He's 500 years. He has, he has three sons. 600, year 600 comes in the life of Noah. And the dates that are measured for the flood are according to his birth year. Okay. So they are no more than 100 years old when the flood hits. How long do they live? We don't know how long Ham lived. We don't know how, how long Japheth lives. But we know that Shem lives to be 600 years old. So if he's somewhere around 100, Shem's a teenager. He's got vigorous young sons to help him build this ark. God's blessed him to accomplish his purpose. And then God gives his first covenant. Now, I know we speak about an Adamic covenant in a sort of uh, general way, and you know that is that here is the tree of life, here is the tree of knowledge of, of, of good and evil, and you're called to subdue the earth, and, all, and you put all of that together, and you do have an Adamic covenant. I get it. But this is the first explicit stated covenant in Scripture. You see, the other pronunciations in the fall, for example, were curses of judgment and prophecy in chapter 3 that Chris talked about last week. But here we come to a promise, what the Jews call a berith, the berith, the covenant promise. And it involved two promises. What happens here? He promises two things. One of them is a negative promise and one of them is a positive promise. The negative promise is this, I'm going to do what to the earth? I'm going to destroy it. I promise you, I guarantee you that. You can take it to the bank. I'm going to destroy the earth. But what's the other promise? He promises Noah, I'm going to rescue. And who, what's going to be destroyed? All living creatures on the earth are going to be destroyed. There's going to be a group left. We might call it a remnant. Does that sound familiar in later Jewish history? But I'm going to save my remnant. The word isn't used here, but I'm going to save a few. Who am I going to save? I'm going to save eight of you. I'm going to save you and Eve, and I'm going to save you three sons and their wives. That's the positive promise. And this covenant is a two-sided agreement. God's part is this. He says, I'm going to rescue you, Noah, in an ark, and I'm going to perpetuate the animal kingdom because I'm commanding you to do what? Bring them in. One by one? No, what? Two by two. He is providing for the procreation of his animal kingdom as well as his human population. So the, the promise on his side is I'm going to rescue you, and I am going to perpetuate my creation through that, that remnant that I saved. And then Noah's part of the covenant is simply to do what? Obey. Now, you're going to do what? You're going to build an ark. You're going to prepare the ark. You're going to gather the an animals. And then once you've done that, you're going to do what? 
You're going to build the ark, you're going to gather the animals, and then you're going to do what? You're going to wait. And he did. He waited another seven days after that. This is a formidable task. You see, it shows Noah's remarkable faith on the first part. You know, and we read about this, Heather did tonight in Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen. What is Hebrews 11 about? Faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. He had not seen these things, you see. In reverence, he pre- prepared. There's the obedience, the ark for the salvation of his household. You know, some say that Noah, what this means is Noah had never seen rain before. You heard that? It had never rained before the, before the flood. I suggest that that's not accurate. Okay? You go back and look at Genesis 2.6. God watered the earth by a mist that came up and not by rain. And then it says, before he made Adam. It doesn't say anything about after Adam. It might suggest that there wasn't rain. But then, he comm- and, and, and then it says, before there were shrubs on the earth. But later there's shrubs. Later there's a garden. So what might it suggest that he was doing that before the creation of Adam? And then there was rain. Now, I don't know. I wasn't there. But that's the traditional idea. Oh, well, it didn't rain until the flood. That he'd never seen rain before. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think the things that he has never seen are a devastating flood that is so powerful that it will destroy all the earth. And oh, by the way, it's not all that important about whether it rained or not, and God continued to miss the earth, okay? I do think it's about a devastating flood. He's going to see a boat that's bigger than anyone that's ever been made. And who's going to make it? He's going to make it. Can you imagine the task that that lay before him? And he's going to see a rescue unlike any other in all of history until the coming of Christ. You see, the faith question is this. Could God really destroy all the earth, and then would he destroy the earth? Did did Noah really believe it? Well, you know, if I hear God talking to me audibly enough that I hear his voice, I think I believe it. Hmm. Could God, at the same time, maintain control of his creation in such a way that he could rescue Noah, you see? Today, this is the bottom line question. Who's in control? Is God in control, or is nature in control? Can God control nature? Well, you see all around us, they say, no, you see, everything is just matter. God doesn't exist. What matters is science and reason and human culture. One of the story, one of the lessons of the flood is who's in control. God is in control, and he can do and he will do whatever he says. And then God's got a perfect plan for the preservation of the species by procreation. Bring two of every kind, male and female, in. During the flood, he provides for them. He says, gather your food. What kind of food? Well, he's gathering the animals, but guess what? Noah was a what? He was a vegetarian. He wasn't eating flesh yet. So he's to gather the food in, and God tells him to prepare for that. And then he prepares for after the flood. He says, now I want you to take of the clean animals seven pairs. What's going on there? He's going to tell him later that he's allowed to eat of the meat in Genesis 9-3. So providing meat for food, but he's also providing living animals for what? Sacrifice afterwards. So you see, God's got it. He's got it all planned. He's not just in control. He lays out the plan for Noah. It's an impossible project. Think about the huge size of the ark in cubits. Let's do it in feet because I don't do cubits anymore, okay? Cubits, what, about 18 inches? 450 feet long, so uh, one and a half times the length of a football field. 
75 feet wide, not quite as wide as a football field. It's actually two-thirds the area of a football field upon which Dallas is playing right now, okay? How tall was it? 45 feet high. That's five stories high, folks. You know, we don't think about 45 feet being high, but it's five stories up. If you take the cubic content of that ark then, it was a million and a half cubic feet. It was huge. There never had been something like this before, and you know, in ancient history until modern times, there wasn't. The Syracusia, which was a Greek ship, was built at the command of Hieron II, who was the commander of Syracuse in Sicily. So it was named after Syracuse. But it was so large, it could not be ported in Sicily. And so Hieron gave it to the king of Egypt, who was a descendant of the Alexandrian kingdoms. He gave it to Ptolemy III. That boat, the largest boat ever made in ancient times, could take about 1,800 tons and about 1,900 passengers in it. Huge. But the size of it was 180 by 46 by 43, probably. It was only a fourth the size of the ark. And here, in primeval times, God is commanding Noah to make this behemoth of a boat. Not only that, there's a lack of knowledge. Was Noah part of a seafaring culture? No. The Phoenicians come later. He's landbound. Are there any maritime experts that know how to build a boat that can stay afloat in a, in a storm like this? No. Who knew? Who knew the exact proportions to keep that boat afloat? God did. And they were very exact. 30 by 5 by 3 was the ratio. The perfect ratio to keep a large cargo boat afloat, not for speed, but to keep it afloat. You know, back during World War II, they built a boat called the SS Jeremiah O'Brien. It was a cargo boat. It was called the Ugly Duckling. It was a huge cargo boat, but it was able to stay afloat, not go fast, but it was able to stay afloat with its huge cargo because guess what, which dimensions it used? Exactly the same dimensions as the ark that is found in Genesis 6 through 9. And then the design. He said, put a protective pitch on the outside. Of course, that was to prevent the leaking. It was compartmentalized. He said, build compartments. Why do you think so? In case one of them got, in, the, the boat started flooding, it would be contained in that compartment. Build three layers. Why so? So that the load would be distributed so that it would not capsize during the storm. You see, God had a perfect plan. And then in this very difficult task, there was one person that stood between the wrath of God and the destruction of humankind. You know, First um, Peter 3 talks about Noah, and it says somebody's waiting. God waited patiently. How long did God wait for Noah to build the ark? A hundred years. And God waits patiently and waits patiently and waits patiently. Why has the wrath of God not come upon this earth and destroyed it yet in the second destruction of the earth? Because Peter himself tells us that God is not slow according to our understanding. He is being what? He is being patient. He is waiting. He's giving a chance for people to do what? To repent. And so all of this time, God's not impatient. Noah takes his time, takes a long time for him and his three sons to build this ark while everybody's laughing at him. <laughs> and God waits patiently. 
You see, there's one man that stands between the wrath of God and the destruction of all creation, and it's the faithful man, Noah. Do you know, we have this idea that everybody laughed and mocked at Noah. The Bible doesn't say that explicitly. I expect they did. And it's not because there's going to be this thing called rain we've never seen before. <laughs> but there's going to be enough rain that can destroy us. Oh, yeah, come on, Noah. You know, you're living in another world. You know, you're a loony on the left fringe. What the Bible does tell us, Peter does tell us, 2 Peter 2, 5, that he was also a preacher of righteousness. So he's a, he, he is bivocational. He is an ark builder and he's a preacher. He's a Baptist preacher, right? Well, I mean, after all, what's going to happen? The water's going to come and they're going to be baptized by immersion. No, I'm <laughs> So he, he preaches and nobody responds. So you get this picture that everybody's laughing at him and nobody believes him and certainly nobody goes into the ark. So after he's finished, he waits seven days. He goes in the ark. God says, go on in the ark. Why do you think that he waits seven days? God's still giving a chance for people to come in. And then finally, time's up. And who closes the door? God closes the door. It's all over, folks. That's all she wrote. God is true to his word. Total destruction came. He said in uh, Genesis 6, 17, Behold, I am even going to bring a flood upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which all breath of life from under heaven and everything that is on earth shall perish. God is steadfast. He is true to his promise. He always accomplishes that which he says. We know that from Isaiah 55. That passage from Isaiah 55, though, is set against the background of natural history. Listen to that passage again about the way the word of God does not return void. For as the rain and the snow fall down from heaven, you get the picture? And they don't return without watering the earth and making her to bear and to sprout, furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word you see, that goes forth from my mouth, not return void. You see, it will accomplish what I desire, and it will succeed in doing that, that which I have sent it to accomplish. God promised that he was going to destroy, and he did. And the flood was the most powerful evidence. The flood was the most powerful evidence and proof that God is true to his word since creation and probably until the coming of Christ. You see, there was unexpected power and overwhelming force in this flood in the second month and 17th day of Noah's 600th year. In, in chapter 7, verses 11 through 12, look at it. It says, The fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened, and the rain fell upon the earth for five or six days. No, what? Forty days and forty nights. The bursting of the underground aquifers. What does that mean? Geologists tell us that underneath the earth on this planet, there are about 23 million cubic kilometers of water. What is that, folks? That's enough water to cover all of the land surface on this globe, 600 feet. It all comes up. There was power in the flooding water. Just six inches of water will knock you off your feet coming down the street. Water flowing at 7 miles an hour has the pressure of an F5 tornado wind. Water flowing at 25 miles an hour is equivalent to the force of a 790 mile an hour tornado. And there are no tornadoes that go that fast. A flash flood coming down, you know, just right down the uh, road here. 
there's a creek that runs, you know, right across James Avenue. And have you seen in the trees there where there are bags and everything? How do those bags get up in the trees? Whenever it floods and the water rises rapidly, flood water can rise one foot in five minutes. In a canyon where the water flows down, like in the Jamestown flood, it can create a 10 to 30 foot wall of water instantly. This was a pop, and this, this is all of the water from the heavens and the aquifers bursting forth. The volume was incredible. You know, here about uh, two weeks ago, 21st, 22nd of August, we had what they call a thousand year rain event. What does that mean? It's about one tenth of a percent of a chance that that rain will hit any given day. It may be another thousand years before we get that much rain. Sometimes it feels like that, yeah. Here in, the, in DFW, over nine inches of rain fell over a 24-hour period, period. That's the second highest recorded rain in uh, this area. DFW had to shut down the airport completely. It brought this whole metroplex of almost 8 million people to a standstill. The heaviest recorded rainfall ever in modern history occurred in 1966 on Reunion Island in the Indian Ocean. And in a period of 24 hours, 72 inches of rain fell. So now just take that for a moment. Take 72 inches in a 24-hour period. Multiply that out by 40 days and 40 nights. You have 240 feet of water added to the other 600 feet that we're talking about. And folks, I think it rained more than that. Incredible power, incredible force, and incredible extent. It covered the mountains, it says in Genesis, the seventh chapter. And then it rose another 15 cubits above that, and it lasted for 150 days. And Genesis 7, 23 says, Then he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the earth, upon the land. And all the animals, the creeping things, the birds of the air were blotted out. But God delivered Noah. God delivered him safely and delivered only Noah and his family. And after five months, then, from the beginning of the flood, that landed on Mount Ararat. And they patiently waited on God. You know the story. They... After the mountains appeared, about another two and a half months later, he waited 40 more days, and he sent out a raven that flew to and fro. Then he sent out a dove that returned with nothing. Then he sent out a dove that returned with an olive leaf. And he waited seven more days. In the 601st year, first day, first month, he sent out another dove that did not return. And then finally God, in the second month of the 601st year, God said, okay, it's safe. You can get out. You see, Noah waited on God patiently for, for safety. And then what happens? There is pleasing worship and divine reflection that occurs. What's Noah's response? The first thing that he does after he comes out is he sacrifices, Genesis 8.20. This is the first recorded sacrifice. Now, I know that Abel gave his offering to God, but this is the first recorded sacrifice in an official way here in Scripture. And it was a burnt offering, totally dedicated to God, he didn't withhold any kind of kind, any kind. He took from all kinds of the clean animals and offered one of every kind, which showed that he was totally dependent on God who had provided the animals, and this was according to God's plan. What is this symbolic of? In our story of the scarlet thread, this is clearly symbolic of the coming sacrifice of whom? Jesus Christ. God knows that. Noah doesn't know it yet. And then God reflects. God then thinks to himself. He doesn't say this to Noah. Near the end of chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. He smelled the soothing aroma. It doesn't say he was pleased, but I suggest that he was. And then he thinks to himself, I'm going to make a promise. 
I'm going to make a promise that this will never happen again. I'll never curse the, the land because of men. <laughs> and I will never again destroy the earth by living water. You see, this is based on his mercy and his grace. I'm never going to destroy the earth because of men because it says here, he knows the intent of man's heart. And man's heart is always evil. And if we are going to wait for redemption, God knows. If redemption is going to come, it's not going to come through man. In other words, what's being said here is God knows that we needed a what? A savior. And it's not going to come through mere mortal man. It's going to come through the divine man, Jesus Christ. You see, his mercy is, he spares the earth today knowing that we, sh we, don't, we should not be waiting for a human savior, but he has sent the divine savior. And then there's grace in this. A final remedy is coming. You see, the blood forecast, the blood sacrifice forecasts the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. This is an incredibly important point in the story of the scarlet thread. All of redemption, all of the redemptive story hinges upon this point. Man cannot save himself, and only God can do it, and he has provided already. Just like he provided the clean animals on the ark, he already had prepared the sacrifice that he was going to send. And then God seals his covenant in chapter 9, verses 3 through 7. And it's a, he starts to talk to Noah about his side of the covenant. You may eat of the living animals. Now he's no longer a vegetarian. Just don't eat meat with what? Blood in it. And don't shed human blood. He doesn't say it like Cain did and Lamech did. And then he goes on and he repeats the command. Be fruitful and multiply. He renews the original charge to Adam and Eve. This right here is the nexus. It is the core of what is called the Noahic covenant that is repeated at Jerusalem in Acts the 15th chapter. When they say what should Gentiles do to come into the community, they don't have to be circumcised, but they ought to avoid immorality. They ought to avoid eating meat offered to idols. And it's based on that Noahic covenant. And then he pronounces verbally, he pronounces to Noah the everlasting covenant that comes from his heart. You see, the first covenant had been, I'm going to destroy the earth and I'm going to rescue. That was temporary. This is the permanent covenant with humanity. And he reveals his thoughts of his heart to, to, to Noah. By his mercy, I'm never going to destroy again by water and by grace. I'm going to give you a sign to remember that. And so we then come, finally, to the text for tonight's sermon. We're almost finished. Genesis 9, the everlasting covenant. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now, behold, I myself do establish my covenant, first time he says it, with you and with all the descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you. Of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish, second time, my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the third time, covenant, which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for successive generations. I will set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign for the fourth time, covenant between me and all the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth and the bow will be seen in the cloud, I will remember my fifth time, covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all, the, of all flesh. And never again shall the water come upon, be, become a flood to destroy all the flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it and I will remember the sixth time, 
everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the, what? Seventh time. Covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. I'm not a numerologist, but that's the perfect number. Seven times he repeats. And whose covenant is it? You see, this is not a contract. It's a covenant. It is initiated by God. It has two sides. But seven times he says, this is my covenant. It's what I'm establishing. It's what God's doing. It's not of Noah's work. It's not because of your obedience. It isn't because you've been good. It's not because you deserve it. I do it out of my what? My mercy. That's the merciful part. The grace is then he gives a symbol of remembrance. So that whenever we see that symbol, just like after the death of Elizabeth II outside Buckingham Palace and that double rainbow occurred over Buckingham Palace, we're reminded not just that Elizabeth has died, but we're reminded that God has made a promise for, to us that is everlasting. Symbols are important. It points to the coming symbols of the cross. It does, it's not the cross, but God works through symbols powerfully, doesn't he? The Lord's Supper, a powerful symbol of his death, burial, and resurrection, and then anticipating his second coming. Symbols are important. Baptism symbolizes our being buried unto death with Christ in baptism and being raised to walk in newness of life. This is a covenant. This is very important in our story of the red line, the scarlet thread. This is a fundamental pattern of the plan of redemption, the covenant. Time and time and time again. The next time we'll see it will be in Genesis 15 with whom? Abraham. The next time will be in Exodus 19 with whom? Moses at Mount Sinai and the people of Israel. The next time we will see it will be 2 Samuel 7 with whom? David and his everlasting covenant with, with King David. And the next time we see it is going to be Jeremiah proclaiming the new covenant which then is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. His everlasting covenant doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that, the, that judgment will never come upon the earth again. Peter tells us it's going to come, and it's going to come in a white-hot heat, and everything is going to be destroyed. But because we're people of faith and because we're righteous in Christ, we're given this promise. That means that it's a good thing we can look toward a new heaven and a new earth. It doesn't mean that judgment's not going to come. It does mean this. He's not going to destroy it by water, and he is going to make provision that is symbolized in the sacrifice by Noah for our redemption. And it's extended to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. You see, this covenant of redemption that we're talking about didn't just begin in Genesis 3. It didn't begin just in Genesis 1. It began, we know when, in eternity between the Father and the Son, and they agreed together that someday he was going to come and pour himself out and be a sacrifice for us, and that whoever believed in him would be, have the inheritance of the eternal covenant. I read it this morning at the end. No, I read it yesterday at the, at the funeral for uh, Betty. We're reminded, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, chosen in whom? in Christ, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as children through Jesus Christ to himself. The covenant of redemption is an eternity. Let me close with this. We talk about it being an everlasting covenant. It's really an eternal covenant. It's timeless. 
God knew about it in his heart before the flood. How long is eternity? How long is everlasting? Brady was sharing with me an example of this, and I think it's good. The longest marriage ever recorded in history, which is based on what? Covenant. Not a contract. Covenant. Herbert and Zelmyra Fisher. I wonder what he called her. Myra or Zell? North Carolina. Married in 1924. They lived together 86 years and 290 days. I think they were eager to see that 87th year come around until Herbert died in February 2011. That's a long time. What's the longest living thing on earth that is not a non-clonal uh, organism? It's a tree. It's called the Great Basin Bristlecone Pine. Yeah, you know about it, don't you? Yeah. It, it, it grows in the mountains of Colorado, I mean, uh, California, Nevada, and Utah. The oldest one of those trees is called Methuselah. It's 4,853 years old. We don't know where it is because the forest rangers keep that secret. They don't want anybody abusing it. What I want to know is how did they determine it's 4,853 years without cutting it and counting rings, you know? Yeah. But that's nothing, folks, in terms of eternity. How long would it take you if you got in your celestial uh, light-powered, light speed-of-light vehicle and traveled across the universe? It's not just 14 billion years to the edge of the universe. That's the time of the universe. It would take you 46 billion light-years. Eternity is longer than that. Scientists have discovered recently the half-life of Xenon-124. It's the longest half-life of any element ever measured. And I don't know how they did it, but they have determined that the half-life of Xenon-124 is 18 sextillion years. I don't even know what sextillion is until I put it on a piece of paper. and, I, Folks, that is millions of trillions of years. It's 18 million trillion years. It's 18 with 21 zeros. I don't think we'll be around to see a, 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 an atom of xenon-124 drop from its full power down to its half power. Okay. The point is this. Eternal transcends all time. Eternal is in the heart of God. His everlasting covenant exceeds all of these time boundaries. He's not bound by time. And so when we think about the story of God's mercy and rescuing in the Noah story and the flood and his grace of giving us the symbol, which is later the cross of Jesus Christ, we're reminded of this. For the Lord is good. His mercy is what? Everlasting. And his truth endureth to what? All generations. The scarlet thread is eternal. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.